Okay, ladies and gentlemen, can you hear me? Yes? All right, well, uh, uh, on behalf of the uh, Department of International History here at the LSE, uh, let me welcome you uh, to our annual LSE Golf History Lecture. Uh, my name is uh, Roham Alvandi. I'm an Associate Professor of International History here at the LSE. Um, and uh, uh, it's my great pleasure to, to chair uh, this lecture this evening. Um, first of all, I, I want to thank the uh, uh, LSE Kuwait program for their very generous uh, financial support of this lecture, without which it really wouldn't be possible. Um, I am very pleased uh, to welcome uh, Firuze Koshani Sabet, the Walter H. Annenberg Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania uh, to the LSE. Uh, Professor Koshani Sabet is uh, one of the world's uh, most distinguished historians of modern Iran and, and the wider Middle East. Um, she completed her uh, graduate work uh, at Yale University um, uh, which, the product of which was her first book, uh, Frontier Fictions, Shaping the Iranian Nation, 1804 to 1946, which was published by Princeton uh, in 1999. And um, I think some of, I see some of my students here in the room who would have read that book earlier last term, I think. Um, so it, it's, it's a re it was a really groundbreaking book that analyzed the significance of land uh, and border disputes uh, in the process of identity and nation formation, uh, as well as cultural production in Iran uh, and its borderlands. It pays specific attention to Iran's shared boundaries with the Ottoman Empire, uh, Central Asia, Afghanistan, uh, and the Persian Gulf region. Um, so building on that, uh, on that work, uh, Professor Koshani Sabet is, is uh, completing a forthcoming book entitled Tales of Trespassing, Borderland Histories of Iran and the Middle East, uh, which is going to be published by Cambridge University Press, um, in which she expands uh, her arguments about frontiers, nature, and border communities in uh, Middle Eastern modernity. And it's from that second work um, that this lecture uh, is drawn from. So you're getting basically a sneak peek. Uh, uh. Um, in addition to her work on the relationship between borders and identity, uh, Professor Koshani Sabet um, has worked extensively on the histories of disease, science, and reproductive politics. Um, she is the author of a book entitled Conceiving Citizens, Women, and the Politics of Motherhood in Iran, uh, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2011 uh, and which received the 2012 Book Award from the Journal of Middle East Women's Studies for outstanding scholarship in the field of Middle East gender studies. Um, she's also published articles on disability, hygiene, humanism, uh, and quarantines in the context of the wider Persian world. Um, finally, and I... And, most interestingly for me, and most enviously, I have to say, um, she's not only a historian, but she's also a novelist. Uh, and she has written several works of fiction, including her first novel, um, Martyrdom Street, uh, which was published by Syracuse University Press back in 2011. So given the depth and breadth uh, of her work on the modern history of the Persian Gulf, 
Um, we are delighted to have her here to deliver our annual golf history lecture. Her lecture this evening is entitled The Arab-Persian Binary, Histories of Culture and Conflict in the Persian Gulf. Now, I don't know anything about Twitter. I am not on Twitter. I don't know how it works. But I'm told to tell those of you who are Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Golf. Um, secondly, could I ask you to please put your phones on silent uh, if you haven't done so um, already? I should also tell you that this evening's event is being recorded. Uh, there will be an audio recording um, of this evening's event, which will hopefully be made available as a podcast, assuming there are no... Um, technical difficulties. Um, so uh, uh, the lecture will be for about 40 minutes or so, after which um, we will have, you'll have a chance to put your questions to uh, Professor Karshani Salbet. Uh, so please join me in welcoming Firuza Karshani Salbet to the LSE. Just checking to make sure I'm audible. Thank you so much, Professor Alvandi, for your very generous introduction and for the invitation to present my research this evening at the London School of Economics. Um, I think this is the first time I've actually presented my research in London. I did so many, many years ago at Oxford, but London is, is different and very welcome, so I'm most grateful for being here. Um, and... It is really a great honor for me to deliver this lecture as a part of this forum, which I hope will pique your interest and inspire new ways of approaching the history of the Middle East and the Persian Gulf through the age-old and at times stereotyped binary of the Arab and the Persian. Before I begin, I should like to dedicate this lecture to the memory of a beloved colleague, Dr. Ali Reza Sheikhul Islami, who recently passed away, a distinguished scholar and generous colleague, Dr. Sheikhul Islami, the former professor and Sudavar Chair of Persian Studies at Wadham College, Oxford University, served the field with distinction, both through his erudite scholarship and his generous mentoring of young scholars. I hope that this lecture will, in some small way, honor his profound intellectual legacy and memory. As Professor Alvandi mentioned, the talk is excerpted from a forthcoming article and from chapters comprising a book uh, book project tentatively titled Tales of Trespassing, Borderland Histories of Iran, Iraq, and the Persian Gulf. Now, I'm not always the most adept at doing two things at the same time, but I'll do my best. Um, this is just a beautiful image, and I couldn't resist but to start my lecture with this beautiful picture that is so lovely and yet has become the site of such contestation and conflict. On the 16th of November, 1903, the Viceroy of India, George Nathaniel Curzon, left Karachi to embark on an extravagant tour of the Persian Gulf. Designated the Pirate Coast, the Persian Gulf had provided a passage for traders, migrants, and pilgrims since antiquity. The Viceroy, whose appointment to this vaunted position at the youthful age of 39 had elicited surprise, he, he quickly tried to earn his regal stripes as a noble emissary of the British Empire. Weeks later, when Curzon arrived at Meshat, he held a grand reception, Durbar or Darbar, aboard his ship, aptly named Argonaut. From Meshat and later Sharjah, Sharara, Curzon went to the port of Bandarabos, where Sir Arthur Harding, the British minister in Tehran and Iran's governor of Boucher, Salar Moazam, greeted him. Curzon's visit, though largely symbolic in nature, garnered the attention of Iranians from across the coast. 
Accustomed to watching Britain's expanding presence in these waters, informally renamed the British Lake, and that's actually true. I mean, there are documents, I mean, there are written um, records that refer to it informally as the British Lake. Iran considered the impact of the trip, which manifested Britain's naval ascendancy over the southern coast of the Persian Gulf. Iran's governor, Fars Al-Odole, also left Shiraz to make preparations for Kurzan's visit. Um, and official Persian newspapers, which followed Britain's coverage of Kurzan's impending tour, observed that the British journals were attaching great significance to the Viceroy's voyage. As a result, Iran, too, paid unusual deference to the Brit- British presence in these ports, adopting an exceedingly submissive and respectful posture toward Britain. One Iranian journalist wrote, quote, We congratulate our Iranians on the arrival of the august Viceroy to the border of our country, as we are hopeful about the outcomes of this trip. We pray to our exalted God for the enduring friendship and unity between Iran and its old friend, the government of England, which today rules over many of our brethren in eastern lands who share our religion, and we wish for their felicity and happiness. And this is quite unusual because the Iranian press of the time, and of course in three years' time especially, when there was the constitutional revolution, would be far from this deferential to any kind of British presence or... um, possible intervention um, in the southern coasts of the Persian Gulf. The strategic value of the Persian Gulf also acquired new significance when in 1902 the American naval historian Alfred Thayer Mahan labeled it quote-unquote the pivot of defense and famously coined the term Middle East in his off-cited essay, International Relations and the Persian Gulf. In this work, Mahan laid out Iran's position and Britain's need to safeguard these waters to maintain its naval and economic supremacy. It would, however, be the discovery of oil in Iran at Masjid Soleiman in 1908 that would solidify Britain's hold over these ports in an unprecedented fashion for the next um, almost 70 years. How is the arrival of the British Navy on these shores different from previous imperial impositions upon these domains? Um, I'm just gonna. How did the character of the Persian Gulf littoral change as a result of the British presence, whose role was alternately described as that of protector or invader? What impact did colonial encounters place on the ethnic identification of these seafaring communities? I argue that the British presence and its creation of a neat but unrealistic ethnic division of Arab and Persian along the shores of the Persian Gulf irrevocably changed the understanding and and depictions of the region with long-raging and often dire consequences for those populations that included not just Arabs and Persians, but also South Asians, Africans, and others. To be fair, some British travelers and administrators did give voice to mixed ethnic population, but as the century carried on, Britain lay an Arab veneer upon these multi-ethnic southern communities and supported nationalist efforts that erased or undermined the territorial and historical claims of other groups, especially Iranians. Unlike the Arab communities, which did not have an independent state from the period of Ottoman expansion into the Levant, into the Levant, North Africa, and the Arabian Peninsula in the 16th century, Iran managed somehow to hold on to its suzerainty, however tenuously. As such, it did not often enjoy the protection of Great Britain as the Arab communities of the Persian Gulf did and do so to this day. 
On the contrary, it was frequently threatened by Britain's military and dispossessed from its territories beyond the now recognizable boundaries of its modern nation-state. Even when Iran launched successful military campaigns of expansion in the 19th century, and by the way, the last wars of Iranian expansion actually took place in the 19th century. So when we sit here and when we hear about Iranian um, expansionism, I think it, it bears remembering, actually, that the last war of expansion was in Afghanistan so in the 1850s. So, you know, I think that's an important detail to keep in mind. Um, Britain forced its retreat, um, you know, in the 19th century, forced Iran's retreat at that time. And by the 1930s, although Iran continued to flex whatever muscles it had in the Persian Gulf, it faced resistance from Great Britain, which consistently supported Arab interests over Iranian ones. This pattern of colonial administration facilitated the slow but relentless progress, progression, rather, of Arab nationalism in the territory south of the Persian Gulf, a discourse that, like other nationalisms, including Iranian nationalism, gave prominence to one ethnicity and language over others. It also led to the lopsided power differential in the Persian Gulf, which has disproportionately privileged Arab communities, both economically and culturally, over others. A significant number of historical sources on the Persian Gulf in the 19th century come from Great Britain, unsurprisingly. Um, And so the historiography of the field naturally reflects this bias. And I just want to spend a few minutes talking about it. Um, I mean, if you just go down the street, as I have the past few days, to the British Library, you very well know that the India Office records are filled with documents on virtually every facet of the administration of the Persian Gulf. And so I think for this reason, it is unsurprising that the British perspective and the colonial perspective is such a dominant one, even in works that are published today by scholars that, you know, have, uh, have adopted a more critical uh, reading of those actual, actual sources. But the historiography continues to be problematic. Um, There are many works in Arabic, obviously, that intend, you know, have the nationalist end of promoting, um, uh, you know, Arab nationalist interests. And there are similarly Persian works, most notably by Ahmad Kassabi and Feridouna Adamiyat, that promote, um, you know, the Persianate perspective. And... More recently, there's also a kind of scholarship that tends to emphasize the hybridity of uh, the Persian Gulf, which, in my view, is not entirely accurate and reflective of the actual reality, historical reality of these communities. But that, too, has been very much embraced by the scholarship of Lawrence Potter. Um, Excellent scholarship, but, you know, there are some areas of dispute, I would say. So, yeah. Um, And as we know, I mean, this also very much is reflected in the terminology and the nomenclature of the Persian Gulf, which is really not the subject of my talk. Um, This has been studied by many scholars here in Britain um, and, and continues to be. But the emphasis here, and I think this is the larger point of my talk and my argument, is that the impetus for Middle Eastern nationalisms after the First World War, it was often cast, I mean, it was, was to create a monolingual and monoethnic culture and states. And I think that's one of the problems we face now throughout the Middle East is that the model of nationalism that was bequeathed to these countries was not one in which pluralism and diversity was embraced. In fact, it was quite the opposite. These states were, in fact, um, encouraged 
to promote a monolingual, monoethnic nationalism, which in many ways did them a disservice and did not at all represent the reality on the ground. Um, now, along with British sources, um, there are also very numerous Ottoman sources, and it's important to point out that the naming of this land, of this waterway, um, was also in dispute in the 19th century when an Ottoman map, as you can see, referred to it as uh, the Gulf of Basra. Basra This is one of the you know documents that I recovered a few years ago um, in the Ottoman archives, and so this is at a time when. For much of you know, for much of the history, their history, 18th, 17th, 18th century, the Ottomans did not really pay a lot of attention to the Persian Gulf. But by the 19th century, into the into the First World War, as they lost territories elsewhere, they became more and more interested in asserting their suzerainty in these areas. Um, and so um, they engaged in a series of, of treaties with Britain uh, in the early 20th century. Nonetheless, so although Ottoman sources remain voluminous, as this you know, map also indicates, they are not consulted nearly as frequently because many scholars don't read Ottoman Turkish. And so, again, the British influence on the region's history and historiography remains indelible. <clears throat> and so political dissent um, in these regions of the Persian Gulf in the 20th century, often as a result, became centered on differences in race, ethnicity, language, and religion, though there were not always clear-cut mechanisms for the differentiation, differentiation of populations along ethnic or racial lines. It is also to be remembered that the individuals populating these territories were often multilingual, speaking not only Arabic and Farsi, but also Hindi and perhaps Swahili, among other languages. These tensions manifested themselves in waves of protests and separatist movements and continue to do so even today. In the Persian Gulf, a new topography mapped out ethno-linguistic difference more than cultural contiguity. Under the watchful eyes of colonial powers and administrators such as Lord Curzon and Sir Arnold Wilson, the Ottoman Empire and Iran separately adopted notions of nationhood that similarly divided the region along ethnic and linguistic lines, which also did not correspond to the ethnic diversity of their states. In 1837, a British traveler, upon alighting in Oman, <clears throat> observed that Mashat is, is not, quote, only, importance, only of importance as the emporium of a very considerable trade between Arabia, Persia, and India, but also as the principal seaport of Oman. He estimated the population approximately 60,000 and described it, quote, as a mixed race, the descendants of Arabs, Persians, Indians, Syrians by way of Baghdad and Basra, Kurds, Afghans, Baluch, who attracted by the equity of the government, who, who attracted by the equity of the government, have settled here. Despite the recognition of the existence of a multicultural and heterogeneous community in the provinces bordering the southern per Persian Gulf littoral, British administrators of the later 20th century described the inhabitants of these domains predominantly as Arab, while recognizing small pockets of Persianate, South Asian, and African residents along the shore. The cultural ties of language and ethnicity, though forged locally, were exploited by Western colonial administrators working to advance the cause of empire and often threatened Iran's territorial integrity. 19th century European writers, with scant knowledge of local languages and culture, created ethnographic maps to explain regional differences in dress, speech, race, and ethnicity, often based on cursory, unscientific, and uncorroborated observation. 
designations of race and ethnicity became especially significant as Iran and its neighbors were forced to define boundary lines intended to create distinct ethno-linguistic communities along newly recognized border. For at no point would it have been facile to distinguish with reasonable accuracy the mixed ethnicities and large communities of itinerant Arabs, Turks, Baluchis, or Persians in longstanding and regular contact around the, along these borderlands. Yet the historical process of knowledge production, and this is really the issue, is how was this, how were ideas of race being and ethnicity being scripted? So the production of knowledge about race and ethnicity, that is a careful examination of assumptions about race, language, and ethnicity, has, has scarcely been written. A scrupulous deconstruction of such truisms is essential to understanding the formation of ethnicity and identity in the Persian Gulf. My research, while building on existing literature, departs from some of the premises of key theorists and historians in specific ways. First, while I recognize the Persian Gulf states, like other societies of the post-World War I Middle East, forged a culture of homogeneity to create unity by suppressing cultural difference, I also contend that colonial powers, most notably Britain and Iran and the Persian Gulf, emphasized and exploited racial and ethnic divides in ways that were far more complicated in reality. The manner in which some European travelers, colonial administrators, or scholars affixed ethnic or racial designations such as Arab, Turk, Persian, were at times erroneous and based on a limited understanding of local culture and languages. Such cultural labels, despite their inexactitude, often assume the status of fact in colonial administration and in in handbooks, for example, the Persian Gulf handbooks, official documents of of British administration. Um, These were passed down, and you'll see later in the talk as I'll refer to them. Tribal and ethnic categories in Iran and its environs, including Iraq and the Persian Gulf, drew on a multitude of cultural markers, such as tribal affiliation, kinship ties, locale, language, or religion. In the absence of censuses calling for self-identification, scholars must carefully confront historical assumptions about race and ethnicity and allow for alternative historical narratives in these borderlands. I attempt to recover the Persian presence outside of the Iranian nation-states and in areas where it was historically suppressed for political and economic purposes. Central to this question is a consideration of how colonial officials and 19th century ethnographers understood race and ethnicity. The rise of anthropology in the 19th century fueled curiosity about the divergences of race and language, and the Middle East became a locus of numerous such inquiries. The data collected by diplomats, boundary negotiators, and scholars, geographers, physicians, linguists, philologists, and ethnographers came with theories intended to express divergences in human experience and culture. More importantly, anthropologists of that generation often published their findings not only in specialist journals, but also in publications for general readership. Thus, their ideas about race, language, and culture in the Middle East gained currency beyond a select group of scholars. Anthropology provided the institutional and academic framework for the investigation of ideas related to race and language within an ethnographic context. British writers tended to use the categories of race and ethnicity interchangeably, and a clear demarcation did not always exist between an ethnicity and a race. Thus, monikers such as Arab, Turk, or Persian were described as races and eventually as markers of nationality, while physical characteristics and differences in phenotype also resulted in racial classification. 
Examples of the methods that Brit- Brit- British, sorry, British ethnologists and anthropologists employed to distinguish among races appeared in various anthropological journals. In 1877, a leading British uh, anthropological journal distinguished among the peoples in the Middle East through an evaluation of hair specimens. Hair specimens. And Arab hair was described as having, quote, an elongated irregular ellipsis, whereas, quote, the Aryans of Asia, the Persians and the Hindus, for instance, whose hair is very black, belong either to the second or third category. Either their hair presents the medullary colored thread or nothing particular can be distinguished in the center. If differences among Middle Eastern individuals were at times based on such spurious science and outlandish markers of race or ethnicity, and by the way, in the interest of time, obviously I can't cite other such beautiful examples, but suffice it to say that there are many. Hair is just one of them. Um, I mean, and some of you may know the nose, the shape of a nose was another, but we can have that conversation in the Q&A. If differences among Middle Eastern individuals were based at times on such spurious science and outlandish markers of race or ethnicity, then British observations about such matters, which were used at times to justify boundary delineations in the Persian Gulf and its environs, should be reconsidered. As one contemporary con- uh, observer concluded, quote, linguistic ethnologists have spent much vain labor in attempts to prove that language is a reliable test, test of the races of man, unquote. Reviewing the many scenarios in, when, in which language and race may have become conflated in the western Persian Gulf region in Arabia, for example, this our author remarked that, quote, we cannot be sure that in remote times other races speaking other languages may not have existed in Arabia as in other parts of the world, over- overwhelmed or extirpated by Arabs, as in Syria and Egypt, which were countries inhabited by races distinct from the Arabian, unquote. Nonetheless, the confusion over race and language persisted in British and more generally in European descriptions of Middle Eastern peoples, and such accounts propagated at times questionable theories about the region's pedigree of languages, ethnicity, and race. European writers and ethnographers tried in vain to tell apart an Arab from a Persian or Turk in these borderlands. Yet these ethno-linguistic divisions persisted, fueling the false dichotomy of a, quote, Arab literal and a Persian coast on the opposite sides of the Persian Gulf. At various Arab, as various Arab tribes around the Gulf sought to assert their authority, um, Uh, through alliances with Britain, colonial officials gave prominence to Arab claims and frequently depicted the region as predominantly Arab. Even provinces that fell within Iran's domains constantly had to assert their connection to the country. In the 19th century, when Mirza Jafarhan Moshirodole embarked on his mission to delineate Iran's western boundary with the Ottoman Empire, he provided ample evidence of Khuzestan as an integral historical portion of Iran. According to Mirza Jafar Khan, the Banu Ka'ab Arab tribe, which had migrated there from Najd after the rise of Islam, initially professed Sunniism, but they had abandoned the Sunni sect and embraced Shiism during the Safavid era, which doesn't seem entirely outlandish. Yet the British officials did not give credence to such alternative historical narrative. Rajor writers showed sensitivity to Iran's precarious hold over the province of Khuzestan and its you know, waning influence in the Persian Gulf. The famed astronomer and geographer Abdul Ghaffar Najwal Mork observed in his travel log that <clears throat> foreign powers showed little interest in seeing Iran assert its influence there. In describing the province of Khuzestan, uh, George Nathaniel Curzon maintained, quote, that the region is either pure Arab or more frequently mixed Arab and Persian. 
He noted that the Arab element arrived with the Islamic conquest of Iran and that, quote, spontaneous immigration, unquote, populated the region with more Arabs, although there was no historical evidence for Curzon's assertion. Rarely does the ethnic makeup of an entire region become fully subsumed under the ethnic identity of an immigrant community. And so, and yet, in the case of Khuzestan, the argument repeatedly was and has been that that was the case. In another passage, Curzon acknowledges the intermingling of Persian and Arab elements. As he remarks, quote, few of these Arab tribes have kept their bloods undefiled. The word itself, undefiled, is also very interesting, and we can get into that too. The majority have intermingled with Persians to the point that the Persian dress and even the Persian religion have been in the main adopted. This inconsistency in Curzon's description of Khuzestan as pure Arab on the one hand, yet influenced by the Persian element on the other, manifests his intent nonetheless to emphasize, you know, sort of um, the non-Persianness of this, of this area, for lack of a better word. Um, like other British administrators adjudicating uh, sovereignty over Iran's borderlands, Curzon relied upon the slippery, slippery uh, elision of race and ethnicity to marshal evidence in favor of, of a mixed culture that nonetheless privileged the Arab component in Iran's southern dominions. Um, however, Colonel Thomas Holditch, who had surveyed the boundaries of Baluchistan and Afghanistan, noted in 1899 that while there is a fusion of the two ethnicities in the Indus Valley, as in Makran, quote, the language of all tribes alike is now that archaic form of Persian which we call Baluchi. Yet he remarked, quote, it is possible that there are few pure Arabs in the border country, unquote. And despite John Gordon Lorimer's um, very diligent efforts to document the diverse ethnic communities in places such as Masrat, Basra, or Kuwait, by the interwar era, the Persian presence in these regions seemed more and more a historical mirage. During the constitutional period of 1906 to 1911, Persian journalists uh, expressed grave concern over the vulnerabilities of Iranians um, out, you know, in, in the southern regions of the Gulf, especially in the island of Abu Musa, and also about control over the port of Bandar Abbas. One writer urged the Persian community of Bandar Abbas to send, uh, and to, to send an organization and to create a local anjuman or sociopolitical organization to Boucher for political representation and to redouble efforts to counter any foreign control over the strategically and economically significant port. And this is very important because Iran was new to constitutional rule. I think it's really important that one of the issues for the southern provinces is, in fact, the sense of vulnerability and the need to have representation in this newly formed parliament to discuss these very issues. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and as, you know, after the war, Reza Shah, of course, su- suppressed the separatist aspirations of Sheikh Hazal in Khuzestan and also subdued the influence of other tribes throughout the country before claiming the throne. While subsequent Arab nationalist historiography has attempted to assert the Arabness of Khuzestan, Persian newspaper articles written in the early 20th century gave voice to a vibrant Iranian community there, concerned with the forfeiture of the southern coast, um, largely due to British intrigue. Some Iranian writers in the south worried about the erosion of Persian culture there. By contrast, the Arabic periodical press of the same era, and there wasn't really, I mean, we didn't have a vibrant Arabic periodical press in Kuwait or Bahrain or Oman at the time, but 
We did have an Arabic-speaking press, um, of course, in Lebanon, in Egypt, and I did look at some of those newspapers, and there was really not, you know, a conversation. This was not a major issue for the Arabic periodical press of the same time period, which I think is very interesting and important. Um, Though I will also say that there, you know, um, there are some articles on Persian history which are very interesting to read from an Arab perspective written in those newspapers. But we can talk about that later. Anyway, so the Arabic periodical press uh, did not focus on Khuzestan and the Persian Gulf as a locus of dominant Arabist communities and ideas in the same period. Um, even leaders uh, indigenous to the region found it difficult to avoid the politics of race and ethnicity. In 1919, the hereditary head of Kut in Iraq recognized Sheikh, Azal, Sheikh Hazal's mixed blood. I'm sorry, recognized Sheikh Hazal's mixed blood, even while claiming him an Arab. He described Hazal in this way, quote, it is true that he is half Persian, but he has Arab ideas, unquote. Now, the post-World War I history of the Middle East, outside of Turkey and Iran, became scripted largely as a history of Arab dispossession. Although Arab communities had cooperated with allied powers during World War I, and it's important to point out that Iran actually was neutral, and its neutrality uh, was violated by many different parties, nonetheless. Um, Many Arabs became victims of colonialism again, and several Arab-dominant countries were unable to achieve complete independence until the Second World War or after. In response, Arabs, too, asserted their ethnic distinctiveness. As Albert Hurani explained, quote, the First World War ended with the final disappearance of the Ottoman Empire. Out of the ruins of the empire, a new independent state of Turkey emerged, but the Arab provinces were placed under British and French control. The whole of the Arabic-speaking world was now under European rule, except for parts of the Arabian Peninsula, unquote. By the last two decades of the 19th century, Hurani declared that the Ottoman Empire had become largely a quote-unquote Turco-Arab state. Such a statement, however, glosses over the ethnic and racial diversity of what Hurani termed the Arabic-speaking world or the Turco-Arab state. A state, by the way, which also included peoples of Persian, Assyrian, Circassian, Jewish, Armenian, Kurdish heritage, among others, and who spoke Arabic alongside other languages. As Shukru Haniulo has pointed out, the inhabitants of the Ottoman Empire were in fact quite polyglot and culturally diverse in the years leading up to the Great War. As late as 1911, when the Union of All Ottoman Empires publicized a call for Ottoman subjects to unite themselves, it did so in nine languages. This is in 1911. Okay, this is not 1811. 1911. It did so in nine languages, Ottoman, Turkish, Arabic, Armenian, Bulgarian, Greek, Ladino, Serbian, Syriac, in two different scripts, in French. Yet Hurani, himself British trained, sorry, was not alone in describing to much of the modern Middle East a predominantly Arab or Turco-Arab character bereft of its other long-standing ethnicities and communities. In 1917, Sir Gilbert Ernest Hubbard, secretary of the Ottoman-Iranian Boundary Commission, and presumably an official familiar with borderland populations, declared unequivocally that, quote, in the first place, all Mesopotamia is Arab country. Can you imagine how that sounds to any Iranian? All Mesopotamia is Arab country, or Kurds, or Turkmens, or, you know, Jews of Mesopotamia? I mean, it's, it's quite a remarkable statement. Though Hubbard recognized the different ethnic communities living in contiguity along this vague boundary, he contended that 
quote, the neat line which provides a northern limit to Arabia on many of our maps has no basis in fact, and even the frontier between the Turkish and Persian empires in this particular section marks no ethnical or linguistic boundary. Hubbard determined that, quote, a frontier may be geographical, racial, linguistic, religious, even purely artificial. By his account, delineation of the Ottoman-Iranian boundary drew on multiple modes of boundary making, which included tribal, religious, linguistic affiliation. As such, he contended that the frontier is, quote, racial in the South, particularly where it separates Iranian from Semitic, or to be more specific, lure from Arab. Yet the process of distinguishing a lure from an Arab was likely just as fraught with ambiguity and error as the determination of the vague boundary itself had been. Hubbard went so far as to assert that, quote, the proportion of racial Turks in Iraq and of racial Persians in Arabistan is almost negligible, and the spoken language is Arabic throughout, but we know that even today that is not the case. Such a broad erasure of the ethnic diversity of the southern Persian Gulf littoral uh, belied the coexistence of long-standing non-Arab South Asian, African, Persian communities, many of whom had arrived as itinerants, pilgrims, and merchants, and had eventually made their domicile there. Hubbard's assessment of the ethnic makeup of the population of these shores is puzzling, given his contention that the Arab tribes were largely nomadic, quote-unquote nomadic, and thus had an intermittent presence along these shores. Other official British accounts similarly asserted the dominance of, quote-unquote, the Arab race, even when in, quote, admixture of Persian blood occurred in the southern littoral of the Persian Gulf. In 1920, the Persian Gulf Handbook, published by the historical section of the British Foreign Office, which was given the mandate to prepare such documents in advance of the Peace Conference of 1919, the handbook repeatedly emphasized the prevalence of Arab culture over the diversity of peoples represented in this area. For example, in describing the race and language of the Arabian coastal region, the handbook asserted that the population is is almost exclusively Arab, although alien elements although alien elements occur, unquote. The Baharina, an indigenous community inhabiting the oases of Hassa, Atif, Bahrain, was described as an, quote, aboriginal tribe conquered or absorbed by Arabs, unquote, or as a class formed by the conversion of certain Arab tribes to Shiism about 300 years ago, unquote, which would have also coincided with the ascendancy of the Safavid dynasty. According to the 1920 Persian Gulf Handbook, the Appalachian Baharina, quote, as now employed on the west coast of the Persian Gulf, is practically a synonym for Arabic-speaking Shia Mohammedans, unquote. Yet presumably, Arabic-speaking Shia Muslims could have spoken other languages um, and originated from different ethnicities and cultures. Regrettably, these broad and facile assumptions have persisted, tainting contemporary understanding of these societies. For example, writing decades later, British historian and Arabist, Stephen Helmsley Longrig claimed that the Baharina were, quote, half Sunni Arab, unquote, though he grudgingly, grudgingly acknowledged that, quote, the never relinquished Persian claim to the island need not concern us here, though the large Shia element is not unconnected with it, unquote. However, the belief that the Arab race prevailed in the ethnic composition of the Baharina persisted, despite the dearth of historical records supporting this position. 
to the west and southwest of Iran, Arab communities, including the newly created state of Iraq, received a mandate um, you know, to, to unify the state. The subject of ethnicity became a contested issue between Iraq, Iran, and its neighboring states, such as Kuwait and Bahrain, which strove to create and to unify a nation from the territorial spoils of the First World War. In Iraq, Britain ensconced, king Fe- uh, ensconced as King Faisal, who hailed from the Arabian Peninsula and had few ties to the indigenous Iraqi communities. Arab nationalism in Iraq became imposed through Iraqi schools, the constitutions, the writings of intellectuals such as the Syrian Yemeni scholar Sati al-Husri, who also harbored anti-Persian sentiments. This is well-known and well-documented. I'm not the first to make this claim. Persianic communities chafed under these new regulations that gave prominence to Arab culture and the Arabic language, not only in Iraq, but also increasingly in Kuwait and Bahrain and elsewhere in the Persian Gulf, where expulsions of people of Persian heritage became frequent, particularly in the 1930s. In 1928, the Iranian consul at Basra Basra, provided evidence of Persian nationality for persons affiliated with tribes inhabiting the riverine domains near the Shatul Arab or Avranrud waterway. Apparently, some cultivators of the riverbanks in Basra had sent complaints of oppression of individual uh, Persians by the Iraqi government. However, the Iraqi government claimed that, quote, the Persian consul at Basra seduces Arab cultivators from their allegiance by issuing Persian passports to them. Thus, the unresolved matter of ethnicity and sovereignty dogged this relationship, and increasingly peoples of Persian heritage were forced to forgo their identities outside of the homeland. Witnessing its inability to gain recognition for Persians outside of Iran, uh, Iranians redoubled their efforts to promote Persian nationalism at home. Um, And this was particularly evident in the foreign schools that came into existence in Iran in the interwar period. In 1938, an Iraqi school inspector visited Iran and pursued an inquiry about opening two Arabic schools for Iraqis in Khurram Shah, Internal memoranda showed that because the Iraqi government allowed for the operation of, of a select number, I think uh, at that time there were this document, according to this document, there were only five Persian schools in Iraq. Nonetheless, because they had allowed that, uh, the Iranian um, government insisted that the officials in Khuzestan were advised to honor a similar request by Iraq. The only stickler for Iran remained the mounting of a sign in Arabic outside the school. Uh, because Iran had forbidden the use of non-Persian scripts in schools and worried about the propaganda that might accompany the opening of two Arabic-language schools in southern Iran, which it viewed as potentially, quote-unquote, harmful. This is the language of the internal memoranda. As a result, Iran forbade Iranian children from attending the Iraqi establishments. If an Iranian citizen decided to send his child to such a school, it was advised that he be placed under surveillance. The exchange over the regulation, this exchange over the regulation of language instruction in foreign schools showed the insecurities of the Iranian state as confronted the rising tide of Arab nationalism um, in nearby countries, but most specifically in Bahrain, Kuwait, and even Dubai. Um, and this, you know, and its failure in many ways of confronting the mono-ethnic nationalism that it faced both abroad and which it promoted internally. At long last, what can be gleaned from a close analysis of this conflicted history? My aim in studying this intertwined and often oppositional past is not to assert the validity of one nationalism over that of another, 
but rather to deconstruct the ways in which colonialism produced and disseminated a body of knowledge about race, ethnicity, geography, and space in these communities. Territories became mapped in the ways that they did around the Persian Gulf because they promoted certain imperial and economic ends. Yet my analysis of these multiple historical strands in the Gulf embraces what Foucault calls, quote, an insurrection of subjugated knowledge, unquote. What does that mean? A recognition and understanding of the omissions and erasures in the writing of this history from multiple perspectives can shed light on the reasons why these societies seem locked in endless feuds even today. As Foucault explains, only the historical context allow us to rediscover the ruptural effects of conflict and struggle that the order imposed by functionalist or systematizing thought is designed to mask. A careful reading of the history of the Persian Gulf paints a complex picture that resists the facile logic of either Arab or Persian nationalism. Nowhere does the question of Arab or Ajam and the mixing of the two ethnicities acquire new political significance as in this area. The modern mechanisms of border control set the boundaries of legal and illegal exchanges in new and often volatile ways, marking rigid lines between the settler and the native, the wilderness and the metropolis, the the imperial and the local, the truant and the traveler, the Arab and the Persian. Only a reconsideration of the flawed processes of cultural production in these borderland communities can begin to placate these stormy waters. Thank you so much for your time. Would you like to stand or sit? Or? You know, I forgot to use my slides, so I'm just going to quickly ah, go through. Okay. I don't think it's that important. I just like this image of um, the oil nationalization with a Persian newspaper saying the, the British are leaving. Um, and I particularly love this image because I think in many ways it, it stresses what I've said. It's very difficult. I mean, aside from attire, it would be very difficult, I think, to be able to distinguish the ethnicity of such individuals who um, inhabited the coastal regions. Um, And I think we should pay some attention to that. And my preliminary conclusions, which, you know... Well, thank you so much, uh, Firuze. Um, We we have uh, uh, time for... uh, good amount of time for questions, so uh, I'll, I'll, I think I'll take a few questions at a time just to give you a chance to um, uh, gather your thoughts. Um, so uh, could I ask you please, to, to, when you ask a question, to state your name and any affiliation you might have, um, and also remember that question ends with a question mark. It's not an invitation to give your own lecture. So, <laughs> so please. Yes, sir. Robin Hannah, LSE alumnus. Um, I, I have actually, uh, some years ago, international finance uh, seminar on that in Beirut. It was pointed out that though it's usually called the Persian Gulf, but that Arabs don't like it that way. They prefer to be called the Arabian Gulf, but they haven't succeeded because most people in the world are rather the Persian Gulf. I wonder if you just comment on that, 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 that the Arabs are upset that it's called the Persian Gulf, not the Arabian Gulf. Thank you. Please, just wait for the microphone to get to you. Hi, 
thank you for your lecture. Um, I'm a master's student in history of international relations. Um, you did touch upon uh, religion a little bit. I was just wondering if you could elaborate on whether or not religion, so Islam, uh, helped in making this narrative of confusion between Persia and Arab culture more persistent, um, or if it was not really relevant in your research. Anyone else? Yes, please. Hi, um, thank you for a good talk. Um, I'm, um, my name is Daniel. Uh, I'm a student here as well. I'm still Dr. Alvande. Uh, and I'm wondering, uh, have you seen any attempts by the mixed Persian Arab communities of trying to reduce tensions and ethnic nationalism in the region? Got you. Come back. Yeah. <clears throat> Shall we start with those? And, sure. then, and then we could do another round? Sure. So thank you so much um, for those questions, and I'll take them in the order that they were presented. Um, on, the, on the matter of name, I think that, um, I mean, again, the historical record does show us that, um, yes, it does, it does bother uh, certain Arab communities. I would say most prominently probably Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, that uh, this, this, this very tiny waterway, I mean, it's not even the whole thing, um, is called the Persian Gulf. Um, and I think that uh, I am very much opposed to attempts to try to neutralize it by calling it the Gulf, because from my vantage point, it is, again, about the erasure of an ethnicity and a community that also has a longstanding presence there. Iran has not categorically renamed the Gulf of Oman the Gulf of Iran. It has not categorically renamed the Arabian Sea the Islamic Sea. Um, and so I think that there has to be a place for coexistence and recognition um, by some Arab countries of an Iranian presence. Um, and so, you know, this sensitivity, this hypersensitivity, one can be, you know, one can be upset about the Iranian government, one cannot like it, but at the end of the day, it's about history. And it's about recognition that this is a history that is claimed by others. I'm not, personally, I'm not opposed to having all such, um, you know, names removed. I mean, you can call the Indian Ocean, the South Asian Ocean, but if you're going to do it, you have to do it broadly, and it can't just be against Iran. You know, that is my position on it, and I think that's actually a very sensible way to proceed, but I don't know if anyone will take my idea, so I'll leave that question. On the matter of religion, um, a part of my research actually does look at that. My forthcoming book, which I'm a very slow writer and researcher because I just get buried in documents, which is not always a good thing, but but I do what I can. Um, it actually goes back to the 19th century, and I've, I've used a lot of Ottoman documents that very much do speak to um, tensions between Shia communities and Sunni and Shia communities, um, in, particularly in Iraq um, and, of course, the holy cities of southern Iraq, um, which are Shia, of course, um, and the fact that in the 19th century, many of these Shia shrines were also um, um, being supported by the Persian king, the Iranian king. So I think that those tensions are very much alive, and they continue to be. I think one thing that we've, there needs to be more research on is, um, you know, I think the case of Bahrain is very interesting. There is such sensitivity over this issue, um, and, you know, 
I think historical scholarship um, has not really caught up to the ethnic realities and sort of the sectarian divides that are um, that have riven these communities. In Iran, it is very much expected in my research and all the research that most historians of Iran do. We don't deny that um, you know there is a very this is a very very ethnically uh, diverse and pl- pluralistic society. My whole, my whole work, my first book, was all about how, you know, Iranian identity was forged, and then not only Iranian identity, but then it got sort of supplanted by Persian nationalism, a very distinct kind of, you know, that, that suppressed other, other ethnicities in Iran. But that kind of work hasn't really happened in the historiography of Bahrain or Kuwait or Qatar or, or the Arabian Peninsula. Um, or even Iraq. I mean, I think it's shocking to me. And when I teach my modern Middle East courses, I depart from most of you know the historians in the textbooks that are written because those textbooks are often written by people who studied Arabic, did not read Ottoman Turkish, and did not read Persian. So they have one you know one angle. We teach our students to have a multiplicity of perspectives, to read different sources and in different languages because you get a different take on that history. And so I think it's shocking, you know, to read accounts like, you know, Hubbard in 1917 saying all of Mesopotamia is Arab country, you know, and not recognizing the extremely diverse but historically diverse, you know, population of Mesopotamia. So I hope that answers your question. Oh, and the third one was whether the mixed populations are trying in any way to um, overcome this divide. I think that there, I mean, I can't speak very broadly. Oftentimes I look for blogs, um, you know, because I think that's the, the, the 21st century way of kind of gauging popular opinion. And there are some, um, some bloggers, you know, um, Iranians and the Emirates, um, you know, things like that, where, where I do think there are attempts to overcome. Unfortunately, though, I think that the governments don't allow this kind of very natural interaction and intermingling that was possible in the 19th century precisely because the states were decentralized and going into the early 20th century. I'm not saying the boundaries there have been great. I mean, look at the United States. They're building a wall now because they want, you know, because the border control is not good in the 21st century. So we know that these boundaries were being, you know, breached even in the 20th century. But the point is, as regulation, as border control became more and more strict, it just, you know, the government policies have made it very difficult for these types of natural, you know, coexistence to occur, unfortunately. Why don't we go for a second round of questions So Taylor? Hi, I'm Taylor Sherman. I'm a member of the history department here. Um, so this is a, a historiographical question, uh, and it's a little bit long, but it does have a question mark at the end, I promise. <laughs> uh, so in South Asian history, we've had a debate about the production of colonial knowledge over the past 20 years. Uh, 25 years ago, Nick Dirks wrote an article talking about the invention of caste in South Asia, where he made an argument very similar to yours, which is the British came in and they invented these categories and divided people uh, and governed along those divides and that they were artificial and it's a colonial production. Uh, And 
that argument was received in the UK with two rounds of revisionist scholarship. Now, the revisionism is taught over here, and my understanding is it's not taught over there. <laughs> so welcome to the UK. And I want to uh, ask you some questions that might anticipate some of the revisionism that might come after your argument. Sure. And the first one is that, the first round of revisionism was that Uh, the British may have gathered this knowledge, but they relied on indigenous intermediaries who uh, translated concepts for them and uh, actually had more power than you might expect in this knowledge production exercise. So I wanted to ask you what kind of indigenous intermediaries did the British rely on in the Persian Gulf and how do you see their agency? The second round of revisionism has to do with the way that Indians uh, inhabited these categories after they had been produced because it served their material interests. Uh, and so although some groups were effaced and erased and uh, debased, others thought it was useful to, to inhabit these colonial categories and use them. So what, uh, what can we say about uh, Arab and Persian agency in, in using and deploying these, ca these colonially produced categories? Uh, mm -hmm. So, sorry, there is a question mark at the end of both mm -hmm. of those. Excellent. I'm Paul Kemper, Gerda Henkel, visiting professor at the LSE and the German Historical Institute. <clears throat> I mean, it was interesting to see the, what you, you highlighted uh, the attempts and uh, the efforts of British actors to construct and actually create these multi, uh, these monolingual entities and, uh, and these monoethnic nation-states. And you touched upon Ottoman rule. If you systematically compare British domination, domination with Ottoman rule, where are the differences and, and the similarities? Mm -hmm. And can we still take Ottoman rule as a model of um, rule and domination of a multi-ethnic, let's say, community? Mm -hmm. So there were two question marks. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Do you want to? That's yeah, quite a big question. So yeah, you might even need some time. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, thank you very, very much for your questions. They're both um, very thought-provoking, but I, but I do have a little bit of a rebuttal. Um, so I do agree with you that the production of knowledge, in the case of the British, they did often um, gather information. They did employ, you know, similarly um, for the boundary negotiation efforts. They would often. Um, you know, go to, to local people and interview them or get information. However, I will say that in the Persian Gulf, and I was just reading this yesterday in the British Library, um, in, I believe it was in Bahrain, and don't quote me because I'm a little jet-lagged, and I have, I have a, <laughs> I took a snapshot of that document, but, but just with a caveat, I don't exactly remember the details of it, but, but what was, I, I do believe it was in Bahrain, and the British official there, which I believe was Charles, uh, Belgrave? Yeah, I think so. Um, I believe that uh, he actually noted, he said, we have no one here who speaks Persian. They did have people who spoke Arabic. And I think that that is the issue. It's that kind of detail that to me is very fascinating. It's one line in an official memorandum that for me sheds a lot of light because that is the story that's missing here is that, um, you know, and, and in the case of if you go back to the Iranian-Ottoman boundary negotiation efforts, um, You can argue uh, that uh, similarly there were very few um, uh, British administrators and Russian, because the Russians were also adjudicating this with the British, 
you know, who read Turkish or understood Ottoman Turkish and, and Farsi. Um, and I, I always love this detail about that, that they both independently created an identic map of the boundary. And they were so different and they had so many errors, I mean, that they couldn't even reconcile it. So my answer to you is, okay, great, but it was very imperfect knowledge. And that imperfect knowledge cannot become the basis of reality. And that imperfect knowledge cannot be a justification for holding on to boundaries in the Middle East that are deeply problematic. There's a reason why, I mean, I know my talk was not about, you know, the Levant, but it is, I mean, I do cover Iraq. There's a reason why we are seeing the kinds of things we're seeing now in Iraq. You know, and I think that it behooves us as historians, as political scientists, as observers, as as whatever, to to go back and question the the flawed logic that created this. People aren't happy. I mean, British administrators or American or whatever may not know the history of ethnicities or backgrounds, but people living there know. They know, you know, they know what their parents were. They know the lore that it's been passed down to them. Now, that may be faulty, too. But there is a personal sense of belief and identity that has created these divides and that could, that could not be effaced in the Middle East. And this is why these boundaries have not worked. And this is why, despite how much, you know, oppression, suppression, whatever, you know, countries may impose in the Persian Gulf, it's never going to be a cure-all. There has to be a recognition at some point that there are multiple legacies here and many stories to be told and many claims here. And Iran does have a claim too. It's not enough simply to say, oh, you know, they have their own state now and that's it. Iran, Persia ends at these boundaries. It doesn't and it didn't. You know, and it bugs Iranian historians and, and others because, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's literally an erasure of history, which we cannot allow. So that's my answer to that. Your second question was, what is the agency in deploying colonial produced categories? Well, I think there was a lot of agency. I mean, I think that, you know, Arab communities benefited enormously from it. Persian communities did not. I mean, that's a fact. But the scholarship that is being produced based on British sources largely doesn't speak to that. And that's why it's problematic. That is why you cannot just have, you know, Middle Eastern departments that only teach Arabic. Because then you can't read the Persian sources from the early 20th century. And you go in, as I have, luckily, I, you know, I read and I did study Arabic and Ottoman Turkish. So luckily, you know, I can go and look and I can say, oh, well, gosh, Abu Musa was important not just in, you know, the 20th century, in the, you know, around the outbreak of the Iran-Iraq war, but actually in 1906 people were talking about it. I mean, you know, I, th- I, I don't, there is not a single book that I've seen on the Persian Gulf published by Cambridge or Oxford or Harvard or whatever, you know, that speaks to that. I think that's a problem, you know, and I think that we have to create, I mean, we have to train historians. And this is not about a nationalist propaganda. It's about, it's about, you know, a history that relies on a multiplicity of perspectives. I just can't emphasize that enough, you know. So that's what I would say. Um, Regarding your question about the Ottoman Empire versus British rule, you know, I have to say, um, rightly or wrongly, I'm a Turkophile in some ways, and I don't know why I am. I have no 
I have no Turkish blood. I don't even know if I do or not. That's such a weird thing to say. But uh, though my husband is partly Azeri, so my kids are, you know, I guess they're a quarter Azeri. <laughs> but then, you know, whatever. But anyway, so I have to say personally that I do think the Ottomans did some things properly. And one was they didn't impose Ottoman Turkish, you know. There's a reason why, you know, I mean, they, they, you know, I mean, there's a reason why Egyptians still speak, you know, Arabic. Um, although you can argue that was Arabic indigenous to Egypt? You know, did Egypt also lose its, some of its ancient languages like Coptic or Greek? So again, it goes to, you know, the imposition of a culture, you know, and the failure in the Middle East, almost every country you look at, to recognize this rich, diverse heritage that the people have. This is the problem. And I, and I do think that I'm not saying the entire Ottoman model was good, but that component, this multi-ethnic view of the Middle East was a very welcome one, I think, and I wish we had that today. I think the Middle East was served poorly um, after the First World War when the colonial administrators, as I said in the talk, bequeathed upon it this mono, you know, ethnic, mono, whatever, all over... And sort of that became the model of nationalism. Why couldn't nationalism have been articulated as a pluralistic vision? I just don't understand that, you know? Okay. Yes, sir, please. Just wait for the microphone if you don't mind. I'm just wondering whether Arab feels a sense of inferiority because if you look at the culture of Iran, it goes back to quite a long time. And they reach uh, right from Zoroastrian, you see, and Manichaean, and you see, uh, mm-hmm. other things. And then Islam, and their contribution to Islam is remarkable, you see. If you look at some of the philosophers and some of the scientists and all that. And I think uh, you're right in some way that... Uh, it is the perfidious Albion British who always like to divide and rule, you see. The, mm-hmm. And the fact that uh, the plantation of colony of Israel, you see, by Zionists, mm-hmm. has made more difficult as such. Mm-hmm. And now the present thing is played where there is a collaboration between Israel and Saudi Arabia is one of the factors as such. And I feel personally that uh, there is some bit of highly inferiority complex shown by the Arabs. Thank you. I may have forgotten the question mark, but in any case, yes, this gentleman here. Uh, During the 20th century, um, starting, I suppose, with the the birth of the Muslim League in, in Egypt and then we have um, Gamal Nasser's uh, pan-Arabism, and then we have the Ba'athist movement. Did any of this uh, take root in, uh, within Iran? Um, was it, or was it purely an Arab, um, uh, a pan-Arab movement? Okay, maybe one more. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for your talk. My name is Khashayar. I'm studying political economy at LSE. And I was wondering if you could expand and comment a little bit on the role of Afro-Iranians during that process. Because I believe that nowadays 
uh, these people have formed their own culture, structure, and own dominant narrative. So I was wondering at that time, which side did they prefer? Where were they affiliated? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Great. Okay, we'll do another round. Maybe we'll let Firuza answer those, and then we come back. So it's time for me. Yes, okay, please. Okay, great. All right. So... Um, I know you mentioned the, you know, the historical legacy of Iran, both in literature and so forth. But interestingly, you know, sometimes when I have nothing to do, because why not, I actually go on Wikipedia and I look at how these historical documents are written. For example, you know, some of the philosophers that you mentioned. And I'm just amazed at how much nationalism, whether Arab or Turkish or Persian, has infiltrated these accounts of the, of the philosophers of the Islamic period. So my only answer to that is that, um, you know, I, I think that there's nothing wrong with acknowledging Iranian contributions. Unfortunately, I do agree with you that because of um, Iran's isolation in the West, that and the sort of lack of contact, scholarly uh, dialogue between scholars in the West and in Iran in a robust fashion, um, you know, these types of questions are not explored. So as a result, I see it as a major flaw in the field of Middle East studies where we have scholars that know nothing about Iranian and Persianate history and teach the Middle East as if it's just a tiny little thing that, you know, could be isolated. And that is really problematic. So I don't really have an answer to what you said. I'm not sure there was a question either. So I'm just sort of commenting more broadly on the statements that you made. Thank you so much. Um, Now, there was a question about the Muslim League and Ba'athism. Well, Ba'athist thought was, again, very much, you know, pro-Arabist. It was a very staunch, you know, Arab nationalist perspective implemented in places like Iraq, which, you know, had people of many different ethnic, you know, uh, backgrounds, like Turkmen's, um, Kurds, you know, and Iranians. And so that did not sit well. Again, this is, there's a reason why Arab nationalism and the Iraqi state as, uh, you know, as an entirely Arab project didn't succeed. Okay, we know that it didn't succeed. There is a reason for that. Okay. And I would argue that some of what we see in Syria is also ethnic. You know, um, it's not just a religious issue. It's not just a sectarian issue. It is also very much of an ethnic battle that is being waged there. Um, and so, no, there is really no influence of Ba'athism. Iran in the 1950s, we did have the Fidayan. Some of the Iranian uh, sort of, you know, um, more extreme religious groups in the 1950s did have some contact with um, Islamist groups in Egypt, but that was really the extent of it, and it was not an ethnic connection. You know what I'm saying? So I would say no to that. And then uh, you're asking about the role of Afro-Iranians. This is actually a subject of a lot of current interest um, and contemporary scholarship in the field of Iranian studies, and not only in history, but also, I would say, like more anthropological studies that have been going on. Um, and you mentioned what was the preference, whether they would you know, be one or the other. I think the preference was for freedom. Um, whoever give, you know, gives you your manumission is the one you go to. I mean, I think that in that 
that particular instance, um, that was very important. I think the scholarship that exists today does speak to the fact that, you know, there is a lack of opportunity in racism, though in a forthcoming article I also argue that, I mean, Iran in particular did not experience racism in the same way that, say, France has or the United States has. Um, we typically did not have, you know, um, um, protest movements rooted, you know, in phenotype racism. That's not to mean, that's not to say it doesn't exist. Of course, we know that it does. And, you know, there's been a wonderful uh, article that is somewhat dated by a scholar named Minu Southgate, where she goes through, you know, Persian literature, like many, many samples of Persian literature that speak to this, to this very prejudice, right? But I think that, um, again, you know, experiences of racism have to be understood in very historically specific terms. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think for me, I think, you know, the issue of ethnicity is less an issue um, historically. Um, and rather independence and manumission are more significant. Okay, I think we have time for one last round of oh, questions. that side of the room. Yes, get maybe if we could just go to Juliet first there. Yes, thank you. Hi, um, my name is Juliet, and I'm one of Professor Alvandi's um, students. I was wondering, obviously in classes we're always taught to kind of scrutinize the sources and the historians and where whatever they're writing is coming from. And I was wondering how you would respond to claims, I mean, they're not my claims personally, but to claims that maybe the narrative you're writing is much more of a kind of coming from an Iranian background and an Iranian scholarship, and how you would kind of respond to criticism on that. Gentlemen, Thank you. Um, a slightly hypothetical question. My name's Robert Wesley. I'm an independent. Um, if the Ottoman Empire had not joined in on the First World War, um, can you give any sort of thought to what that part of the world might look like nowadays? <laughs> and do you think it might be a happier and better place than it is at the moment? Any more questions? Yes, the gentleman there. Thanks for the talk. Yusuf, uh, UCL postgrad. Um, you mentioned the political resident of Kuwait, John Gordon, and um, I was looking through his volume, The Gazette, and from my perspective, obviously I'm not an expert, he seemed um, quite insightful on uh, placing, um, uh, being accurate about the Iranian community in the, in the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. So to what extent is the failure of that misconception based on Whitehall um, what's the role of the political residents in the Persian Gulf in shaping that misconception? Thank you. Can you just repeat the last part? To what extent what? So the roles of the political residents uh, across oh, the Gulf sheikhdoms in, in, in shaping that misconception. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Please. Great. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. So you asked me about um, the sources. And I think that that is the thing that will rescue me from the type of criticism that you think I might encounter. And I will be honest with you and say that the first iteration of this talk, which I presented um, about two and a half years ago, um, I did, someone did ask me that. But I think one of the reasons why people um, you know, may question it First of all, I don't see, first of all, you need Persian, you need other languages to be able to write this history. I mean, if you're not studying any other language but Arabic, 
Well, guess what? You're not going to be able to write this history. And I've been waiting for others to do it, you know, (laughs) but it hasn't been forthcoming. So if I have to do it, I will do it. But I do think that the saving grace here is precisely what I've just been, you know, kind of hectoring, I guess, which is that, um, you know, it has to be done from a multiplicity of perspectives. And as I said in the conclusion, this is not about privileging one nationalism over another. But yes, my vantage point is important because I don't think people are recognizing the extent of erasure of Iranians and Persian at history and culture from the Persian Gulf. I don't think that is a topic of conversation. And it is problematic. You know, it is problematic when histories are being written that are deeply flawed. It should concern all of us, actually. You know, if someone wrote a history of Iran and I had to review it, and they presented it as this monolithic, you know, kind of community, you better believe I'm going to speak out against that. But I don't see that kind of indignation over the types of Arab nationalist histories that are being written, regrettably. And I think this is a call to say that kind of you know, rigorous, self-critical scholarship needs to happen. Um, on the issue of had the Ottoman Empire not collapsed, you know, as I said, I am a Turcophile, and I do love the history of the Ottoman period. I think that's one of the great things I did for myself as a historian of the Middle East and even Iran was to spend an awful lot of time also studying the Ottoman Empire. And I will say that we cannot be, you know, we cannot look through it, we cannot look at it through rose-colored spectacles and imagine, uh, you know, an El Dorado under the Ottomans. However, as I said, I do think they got a couple of things right, particularly in their heyday. And maybe it was a good thing that they didn't have access to great technologies because they could pretty much leave people to do whatever the heck they wanted to do. That's not to say that there was an imposition. That's not to say that, you know, they didn't convert. We know that the Devshir may happened. Would I say that that was a good thing that happened in the Ottoman period? No, absolutely not. But I think that... Um, I think that unlike the 20th century, where legal frameworks were created for the erasure of diverse population, see, that didn't exist in the Ottoman period, whereas all the constitutions of the 20th century Middle East did define communities based on their religion, ethnicity, and language. And that was one of the major drawbacks of Middle Eastern nationalisms, of colonialism in this time period. I can't emphasize that enough. And I think they destroyed our people and our region. And it saddens me enormously. And I think it's up to us as scholars, as peoples, as activists, to try to get it right and to say that that is not the only model of existence. We do not have to say that Arab is better than Persian or Persian is better than Arab. We can recognize the joint important and valuable you know, contributions of multiple communities. You know? And that lesson, I think, has been lost in the Middle East. Um, I don't know if the Ottomans quite articulated it that way, but that would be my 21st century take on it. And finally, um, your question on, on Lorimer and Kuwait. And I will say this, that, you know, again, I see Lorimer as looking at and writing about the Persian Gulf very much from the perspective of a British administrator. To him, Iranians were outsiders to this region. And I think that that's problematic when you look at Kuwait and you see that Mubarak and Khazal are family members. 
I have a family member who is, I believe she's the granddaughter of Sheikh Hazad. Okay. And when, you, when we would go to her home, to their home, um, there was a picture hanging of Sheikh Hazad. Her mother very much thought of herself as an Iranian, uh, you know, and they have their brethren in Kuwait. So I think that my answer to you is that granular story, and it, you know, it's a granular way of writing the history did not even exist in the writing of, of, of uh, um, Lorimer. We need, and in the absence of historical documents, I actually went to them when I was a graduate student. I was so naive. I said, well, do you have any historical documents for me? And they looked at me and they said, oh, you know, it rained or something happened and, you know, they're all destroyed. But I think even in the absence of that, the fact that there are people, there are families who can give us oral histories or oral accounts, even if it's not accurate, their self-recollection of who they are and how they connect to their relatives, you know, in Kuwait, for example, is very important. You can say the same thing about, you know, families in Boucher. Um, there are scholars who've written on that, and one in particular has looked at, you know, um, sort of the more sort of Arabist line in Boucher. But we know Boucheris who are Persian, you know, speak Persian, identify with the Iranian nation. It's complicated, you know what I mean? And I think it, even in the work of Lorimer, that complexity was not articulated. So, it, and, and I cannot as a historian, not because I'm Iranian, of Iranian heritage, I'm Iranian-American now, um, I cannot accept that narrative, not because of my background, but because it's historically inaccurate. You know? And I think that we owe it to ourselves to try to resolve this conflict, because Iran is going to continue to be you know, a thorn in people's sides, and maybe more so because its identity is being denied. I mean, any one of us would be like that, Right? It's, you know, I mean, I, I always find it quite remarkable, you know, when I, especially when I talk to, you know, some of my Arab friends, you know, and we talk, for example, about other forms of dispossession. And this is not to say that, you know, um, there was a great deal of dispossession, but, the, but there was some, you know. And again, all you have to do is go down the street, that nice walk that I took every day during my trip here to the British Library, and you will see that in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, whatever, you know, increasingly, Iranians were being targeted. That story has to be told, you know. And that tension has to be resolved. And it cannot just be a narrative of, you know, money that dominates the historical record and the scholarship. Well, I think uh, uh, that's, a, that's a tour de force. And uh, uh, what can I say? As I, as, I, as I was sitting and listening to you, I was, I was thinking what, um, what Fred Halliday would think if he was still with us and he was still here at the LSE. I think he'd be very happy. I think he'd be very, very, very pleased to, to, to hear what you're saying. He was one of the few scholars of the modern Middle East who transcended that Arab-Persian divide, who wrote really enduring work of enduring value on both the, the uh, Arab history and Iranian history. And I think if there's a message from this talk to all the graduate students here, it's that you need to do serious language study, <laughs> Persian, Arabic, Ottoman, Turkish, you know, as much as possible. That's, that's really... Um, I think that's really become, I would say, in the, in the younger generation of historians, a norm now, an expectation. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that 
you could approach this not history. Enough, not enough, but I think, but I think it's, a, it's getting there as, a, as, a, as an expectation, really, um, of the next generation. And that's really thanks to the kind of work that you have done and people like you have done, that you've set that bar. You know, and I think it's, it's, it's influencing the next generation now. Well, um, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you with us, uh, Fuza. Thank you so much. Um, let me thank all of you, please, for giving up your time to be here with us. I know there's probably a million other places you could be in London on any given evening, so thank you for coming. But before we go, please join me in thanking Professor Clinton.